By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They're the place to go online for setting up a simulator in your home or your business. They've got all the major brands of launch monitors like Foresight, Skytrack, Unicore, and FlightScope. And they make enclosures, screens, hitting mats, pretty much anything you're going to need for your indoor studio. If you need help, you can give them a call directly, talk to their experts. You can ask for Gerald or Hunter. I know they've helped plenty of other Sweet Spot listeners, and they can help you decide what's going to fit in your garage, media room, and basement based on your budget and technology requirements. So thanks for their support, and you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. So I've been running my mouth and bragging about my driver to anyone who will listen on Twitter in the show for a long time. <laughs> And it's probably been a little obnoxious, but yeah, listen, I'm proud of going from someone who hated their driver to having it being my favorite club in the bag. And with all that bragging, people have been like, yeah, let's, you know, what have you learned? Like, can you help me with my driver? Because, you know, a lot of people want to know how to hit their driver better. So, you know, we have covered the driver in many other episodes. We'll probably refer to those, but we've had this request for a long time for a quote unquote driver improvement episode. So we're going to give it a shot here, aren't we? Yeah, I'm just sitting here. I'm looking. I've got a two-inch longer drive. I think two-inch or one-and-a-half-inch longer. I bought it at the end of the year to test it out. I don't think I even told you about that, did I? No, this was news to me. Yeah, I haven't even tested it yet. I've had it for, what, almost two months or oh, two months now, and yeah, I haven't touched it yet. So uh, i got to get out there and get on the quad and see. I can't swing it in my room. That's the problem because my ceilings are too low. So <laughs> if I swing that, I'm going to dent it. 
Yeah, you don't want to break your ceilings with driver practice. That's a good place to start. You know, we got a ridiculous amount of questions on Twitter. We were texting a few days ago about what this episode would be about. And you're like, yeah, it'll be a quick one. We'll just do some angle of attack path. And I'm like, no way, it's going to be three hours. And then I think last night you saw the Twitter questions and you texted me that we've got four hours of material. (laughs) (laughs) Well, originally you said it's going to be on driver practice. I'm thinking, well, what are you going to talk about? How to practice it? (laughs) Well, I think we'll get into that too. I think there are some differences. Maybe a little bit. But yeah, we've got a lot of good questions here. We have some things to tackle. It's 2.30 my time. I was talking to my wife before the episode. I'm like, I don't know if we're going to make it to dinner or not. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like the driver. She's like, you're going to talk for three hours about that. I'm like, well, you just edited the chapter on my book about driver practice. So what do you think? And she's like, yeah, you're right. So why don't we start off with what are we trying to achieve with the driver? And this will kind of be a quick recap of what we've discussed in some other episodes. I have defined a good drive as hitting it to your average distance and having a clear path to the green. If you can achieve that goal, whether it's in the fairway or not, you've done well for yourself. It's not always fairway or bust. And you know, we've had conversations with Mark Brody and Scott Fawcett and talked about reasonable expectations with driver, but you know, it's the only club in your bag where you're trying to get maximum distance out of it. And you know, your lateral left to right dispersion is not as big of a deal as let's say you were hitting a wedge shot. So it's more about avoiding penalty areas and recovery situations and giving yourself that opportunity to hit the green in regulation. So that's kind of like my overall goal with driver from a a global perspective, if that's the word I'm going to use. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I was brought up with the philosophy of trying to hit the fairway every time. So that's exactly how I how I became as a golfer and now obviously distance is more of a a factor statistically being shown I mean we've done episodes on that so I won't labor the point but yeah getting it down there as far as possible without adversely affecting direction too much so you know within reason I just try and hit it as hard as I can down there which I do with almost every club to be honest I just keep a similar rhythm of whacking everything which for me is is still patting it but you know get it down there as far as you can and avoid the penalties, like you said. And I always want to hopefully reiterate, because we have so many different types of golfers listening to the show. You know, when we say get it out there as far as you can, if you're someone who drives at 180 yards, 200 yards, and I know we've got people listening who can hit at 330, that's all relative to your skill level and your experience in this game. So when I say that, I don't mean bombing it. I'm just saying I want you to unlock as much distance potential as you can for your current swing speed. And we've talked about improving your swing speed. But you know, a lot of the things we're going to talk about here, and we discussed it in the – we did have an episode on increasing driver distance. You know, these are ways to add 10, 20, 30 yards. So if you're someone hitting at 200 going to 220, these are all realistic expectations. So I just want to get that out there that no matter – who you are and what kind of golf you're playing like this is all relative to your game and i think will be relevant to everyone and of course we'll give you thoughts and try and give you some things to self-diagnose and introduce to your practice sessions and diagnose on the golf course and then you got to do a little bit of homework on your own so one place i'd like to start and it kind of gets to what we were texting about is what's different about the driver versus your irons or wedges or even putter 
people ask, like I got this question a lot on Twitter, like, do you have a different swing with your driver versus your irons? So what are your thoughts on that from a top level perspective? What is different about the driver or not different? Like what's your opinion on that? Well, on whether the swings are different, it depends on how granular you're looking. I mean, they are different. Every swing you make is different if you're looking down to forces and torques and, as I said, looking really, really closely at it. But generally, the swing for me feels very similar. Most of the changes that I make with the driver in setup and the goals are to basically achieve a different angle of attack because the ball is no longer sitting on the ground, so you don't have to hit it with a descending blow. You can actually hit it on the upswing, and the advantage of that is then you can launch the ball higher, reduce the spin rate, and you can achieve maximum distance that way. You don't have to hit up on a driver to play well, but you have to hit up on a driver to maximize your distance potential. So I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but I'm saying if you're someone like me or if you're someone who hits it 180 yards, definitely if you're 180 yards, you'll want to hit up on it to try and get more distance out of it to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I'm i just looking at my notes here and I have kind of the same exact answer, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Like when I'm playing on the golf course or even in practice and I'm hitting like my seven iron versus my driver, I don't feel like I have, I'm like accessing some different technical library in my brain. I feel for the most part, it's a very similar swing. I don't have many different thoughts, but as Adam said, you know, it's the only shot. I think the differences are, it's the only shot where you're teeing the ball up. So the setup dictates a lot of technical changes that show up. The ball's farther up in my stance and teed up higher. So naturally, that's going to encourage an upward trajectory, the positive angle of attack versus, you know, if I'm hitting an eight iron towards the middle of my stance, you know, that's going to affect it differently and have a more downward angle of attack. But the swings aren't all that different. So I personally don't think of it as a different swing. I just think of it as a different setup and there's different variables that I have to control in practice to figure out what's best for me. And maybe that's, you know, a lot of what we're going to talk about in this episode, because like, you know, think of, we said, you know, what, what's the difference between driver practice and elsewhere? I would say that, you know, if I'm practicing my wedge player, my putting, I'm more concerned about distance control and feel. So I might practice a little bit differently. I might do a little bit more random practice where I'm just saying like, all right, hit a 70 yard or a 60 yard or, or from putting, I'm trying to hit different distances to improve my speed control. Whereas driver, it's the same thing every time. It's the only shot where you have complete control over it because, again, you have that T height, that ball position, and you're generally going to try and hit it the same distance every time, which is as far as you possibly can. You know, I'm not making 50% driver swings to hit it half the distance. So that to me is the swing's not the same, but I will approach my practice a little differently because there are some variables that I think are different with the driver than elsewhere in the game. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So you, you mentioned ball position. So having the ball position farther forwards, that's going to put the low point farther behind the ball, which will help you hit on the upswing. I mean, I do make small differences. Yeah, like the body tilt is different. Sometimes yeah, and to, even that. in terms of the feel, I suppose the difference, you know, I'm, I'm hitting down on an iron, I'm probably feeling more compression, you know, that word induces in me some certain swing changes. 
whereas I might feel more sweeping with a driver. But that's about the, as far as it goes. It's not a huge thing. Like I'm not trying to consciously swing my arms flatter or swing the club flatter. That's going to be dictated by the club length and the fact you're farther away from it, and maybe standing a little bit more upright with the posture. Not a huge amount, but a little bit more upright. And those changes themselves will flatten the overall swing plane without you having to feel like it's incredibly different. Yeah, for me with irons, maybe I'm focusing a little bit more on like shaft lean, which you, know, you mentioned like compression, like that feeling. My stance is way more narrow with my irons than it is with my driver. I'm usually widening my stance with my driver i'm getting a little bit of that tilt where my trail shoulder is dipping a little bit so i'm kind of having that angle pointing to the sky more but again it's not a totally different swing there's a few things i'm maybe thinking about differently and setup wise that will affect it but yeah i don't like playing golf with and we've we've kind of gone over this ad nauseum on this show is that i don't want to walk on the golf course with this big library or menu of shots to choose from. I don't want to step up to the tee and think, oh, here's my driver's swing. I'm going to be more upright here and change my swing plane. I did that for a while. I tried to play more of a fade with my driver consciously versus a draw with my irons, and I was changing things around, and it didn't work out well because the swing thoughts were way too conflicting. So I'm now more where, like, yes, things are a little bit different, but they're not that much different. It's still somewhat you know, the same DNA of the golf swing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it can be a separate, you know, it can be. It could be. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree. I'd agree. You probably shouldn't do it too much. Yeah, I mean, listen, anything's possible. So these are just our opinions. I'm sure there are golfers out there who have a totally different swing thought with their driver and they're hitting it great. So if that works for you, go for it. Well, one of the things in setup that might relate to keeping the swing the same, keeping the motion feeling the same is, and we'll talk a little bit more about D-plane in a moment, but aiming your body a little bit more to the right with the driver. Now, that's obviously not for everybody. If you're a slicer of the ball, that might not help you in this regard, but it'll make sense when we talk about D-plane and club path a little later on. Okay. So where do you want to, I mean, we already started, but do you want to talk about, I mean, I think we're probably both in agreement that getting impact under control with your driver is even more important than, you know, other clubs in your bag because of gear effect. Do we want to talk about impact a little bit? Yeah. I mean, in terms of strike location, actually impact really out of the seven variables at impact, we always talk about the big three ground contact face contact face direction yeah well ground contact's out out the window here yeah exactly so out of those things you can actually eliminate ground contact because the ball's teed up however you could replace that with arc depth control so whether you're swinging in higher or lower so if your club swings in higher you're going to hit it lower on the face if your club comes in too low you're going to hit higher on the face so that's arc depth so that would relate to ground contact so it's still a factor here with driver but at least you can eliminate being overly precise with ground contact because you don't have to worry about that. Well, I think impact, and maybe we'll just go over this very quickly because we have talked about this in other episodes. It's very important with the driver to be able to diagnose your ball flight issues because I think what we're maybe getting at here is like always trying to work backward from the ball flight and and find out what the root causes of your issues. So with the driver, because the center of gravity is so far back from the face, we've got gear effect. And you can go, do you ever go on the Tuttleman site? I'm sure you've spent a lot of time on it. 
Yeah, I know Dave. He emails me every now and again. He tells me he'll tell me if I've said something wrong. Yeah, I've used I'm the sure term he incorrectly. <laughs> he, it's a wonderful website. I've spent many hours on it, especially when I was first starting practical golf, learning about all of these things. But you know, very quickly because we've talked about this before. There is gear effect with the driver. It is significant if you're missing it horizontally. For a right-handed golfer, if you're missing it more towards the toe, it will impact more hook spin on it and vice versa on the heel. And then there's vertical gear effect where the top of your, you know, there's your driver has different lofts around the top and bottom of the face. If you strike it lower on the face, the loft is lower down there. So it de-lofts it and it makes it spin more, which is a horrible combination. And if you move higher on the face above the equator, now you're accessing more loft and less spin, which is a great combination for the driver. So you have to figure out where your tendencies are on the face because sometimes, you know, you might be slicing it, but it's not actually from your swing. It's from the impact on the face. So, you know, we've talked about a million times spraying that face during practice and figuring out your tendencies of working on strike location with the driver because you do want to strike it more towards the center and maybe a little up. And if you aren't striking it on the center, learning to know what that feels like and then seeing the accompanying ball flight so you can pick it up on the golf course. Yeah, that feel is really important, really important. I know instantly if I've hit a certain part of the face, if I've hit toe, if I've hit higher on the face, I know what's happened. And so if I see a certain ball flight and it lines up with that strike, then I know what to change. For example, the best example for people would be if you had a robot making a perfect swing through impact, so square path, square club face, and hitting the center, that ball would fly very, very straight. Whereas that same swing, if you nudge the robot forwards a bit so it's hitting it more from the heel, that ball is going to now start more left and fade off to the right more. And vice versa, if you pull the robot back a little bit so it's hitting more off the toe, the same neutral path and neutral face is going to start more right and curve more left with a toe shot because of the gear effect and the fact the club face points in different directions on the toe and the heel. So you mentioned how lower on the face is lower loft because of the curvature of the club. We call that roll. And higher on the face is higher loft. Well, also you have this laterally as well. So more on the heel, the club face points more left. And more towards the toe, the club face points more to the right. And that's because of the bulge on the club face. You call bulge, bulge is and roll. toe to heel. Yeah, and roll is the vertical component of that. So, yeah, identifying, like I've had lots of players in lessons where they've they've made a swing and the ball started left and faded. And they say, oh, I must have swung out the in with a square, with an open face to path. And then we have a look and actually they've swung very square through impact with a square face. They've just, you know, hit it a little off the heel or something. So they could, if they didn't feel that it was a heel contact, they might go ahead and change their swing path there. So it's important to know when to change and why. Again, like before I learned anything about this stuff, I played golf for years, just, you know, hitting drives and seeing the ball flying through the air and then like haphazardly trying to make a change to fix that flight. And I wasn't very good at it because I wasn't quite sure of what was causing it. And I think that's one of the biggest, I don't know, mystery is the right word, but it's one of the, the most important variables in how you're 
whether it's you know swing path, face angle, all that stuff. Strike location with driver is important because that doesn't happen with irons. Like gear effect's not an issue, so you can be more confident of what your impact tendencies were with your irons because you're not worrying about gear effect. So I think that's always step one for me. Is you know we always talk about finding your impact tendencies with every club in your bag and with driver is feeling that because like when i'm on the course fortunately i miss on the heel most of the time which is a good matchup for my draw swing so a lot of times i'll maybe sometimes get a straight flight or a baby fade and then sometimes actually the one i could live with is the high toe miss and i i do those sometimes and it kind of creates this sweeping draw that starts very far right and comes back. So it kind of saves it. So those are actually, you know, a lot about good driving is good matchups. I want to talk a lot about that, but that's a good matchup for me. Whereas if I was someone who missed it on the toe all the time, that's not a good matchup for me. So starting to learn these things and, and keeping track of them and looking for it on the course and in practice is super important with the driver. Yeah. I mean, if you already, you have a, a flight that is already very low spin, with your driver so if you are to hit high and on the toe that may in certain situations reduce the spin too much for you and then you get it dropping out of the ear whereas for a lot of people that's a good thing because they've already got too much spin and so hitting higher on, on the toe is good i actually personally i've got the quad so it tells me to the millimeter where i've struck it and my longest shots they come five millimeters high on the face and five millimeters from the toe or within that vicinity. So the reason for that is when I'm striking higher on the face, slightly higher on the face, that increases the launch angle and reduces the spin. And then slightly on the toe, that also increases the launch angle a little bit and reduces the spin because of the way the, the club is kind of shaped or the face is shaped. So that is where I get my longest shots because I'm all about trying to reduce the spin because I launch the ball so high, low spin is very good for me. But for you, you already spin the ball very little, so that might hurt you if you do it too much. Yeah, I've got to be careful with my matchups and my tendencies of not going, you know, me going higher on the spin spectrum is, is not that big of a deal. Me going lower, that's a problem. So yeah, I mean, but in the general sense, like, you know, if you can move your driver patterns from, you know, if you're striking it low on the heel and high on the toe and low on the toe all over the place, which again is a problem for a lot of golfers, starting to be conscious of that and working on it can really change your game. And then just trying to make that circle smaller. It doesn't have to be on the middle of the club or even that hot spot that Adam was talking about, just a little bit above the equator towards the toe, just shrinking that dispersion patterns of strikes will increase your ball speed lead to less drives that are going too far left or right because now you're you're going to reduce the amount of gear effect and you know modern drivers are good at reducing that they have moment of inertia built into it and they help reduce the amount of curvature on those off-center strikes but it still occurs they're not perfect so yeah that to me is like always a starting point with driver practice or anything else is know your impact tendencies and work on them and, and understand how they affect the ball flight, which I think we've covered in multiple episodes. I don't think people understand how important face strike is with the driver. I mean, if you want consistency, which everybody does with the driver, yeah, it's I, I've <laughs> seen people strike patterns and they're just not good. I mean, if I'm on quad and I hit a bunch of balls, the standard deviation of strike is like three millimeters. 
and you get an average 10 handicapper on there and it might be 10 millimeters it's much bigger and then you get a 20 handicap on it and it's just all over the face and you know, when I show people the stripe pattern, if I spray the face and I hit 10 balls and then they have a look at it, they're like, you hit 10 balls there? That looks like one or two. I'm like, yeah, and that didn't even feel good to me. Only one of those felt good. Like the expectation you have to have for strike quality has to really go up. I mean, obviously, we have the the limits of not everybody has had as much strike practice as me. Not everybody has put 10,000 hours of practice in. So we have to be realistic as well. But that goes into your expectations of, well, if I am inconsistent with the driver and I am hitting all over the face, okay, that's something I should work on, but with the expectation that I may not be a pro <laughs> at this. I don't want to say never because I don't want to incite the people who, who say that we're, we're too realistic sometimes or, or whatever they use. Everything in golf, when it's about improvement, is shrinking that pattern that circle pattern on everything so i think i mentioned this other episodes where ping released like that animated image of how strike location changes by handicap level it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you get from tour pro down to 20 handicap same thing with shot patterns like i've looked at all these shot patterns from tracking companies and what pga tour players are doing you know you look at the dispersion patterns on a 100 yard shot or a 200 yard shot the difference between a PGA Tour Pro and a 20 handicap, like as you move, the, the circle just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like everything about golf is proximity, proximity to the center of the face, to the target, all of it. And what I think is a reasonable goal, what you're just talking about is that if you can start to shrink that circle or that oval, however it looks for your patterns a little bit, maybe 20% in the beginning, 30%, you will be more consistent with how the ball travels through the air and you will hit more fairways and you will have more importantly, less of those shots where it's like, Oh crap, that thing just sliced into the trees or the water or out of bounds. That is one of the big goals here with the drivers removing those uh uh-oh swings. And a lot of that has to do with impact. Yeah. And you see two types of players as well. When I'm playing with amateurs, I, I see the guy who is striking the wrong part of the face constantly. I shouldn't say wrong part, but, you know, an inefficient part of the face. Maybe they're hitting low and heel every single time. And it's just variants of that, basically, variants of that extreme. And so they could be losing a hell of a lot of distance by that, as well as, you know, inducing more inconsistency by being farther away from the sweet spot. And then you get the other guy who's, this is rarer, but it does happen where they're striking all over the face. It's more common with the driver to strike all over the face because the shaft is so long. But I mean, both of those can be improved in different ways. The guy who is hitting the wrong part of the face consistently, he needs to know how to identify it and how to move it, which is going to be like differential practice drills, you know, intentionally hitting different parts of the face. Whereas the guy who's hitting all over the face, maybe they just need to practice calibrating it with some good feedback like Dr. Charles foot spray or, you know, doing some variability practice. I'll often do swings where I set up out of the toe and try and find the center. Then I set up out of the heel and try and find the center. So that's a good way of kind of reducing some of the inconsistencies. Yeah, this is, you know, when you were first telling me like, well, what would be different about driver practice? Like that's exactly like what you meant is that you know these are practice methods you use with every club in the bag 
experimenting with strike location and we talk about it all the time but it just it's more important with the driver for the gear effect reason and the length of the shaft it's just harder to access the center because it's the longest club in your bag so we're on pace for like 15 hours right now so i think <laughs> actually i still want to talk a little about spin rate with different locations because i got i got a little yeah. bit of data off this i did yeah. did a test Throw. once and you know, I made the same swings. I made 10 swings. Everything was the same, angle of attack, loft, everything like that. I just changed strike location. And when I hit higher on the face, the spin averaged around just less than 2,000 RPMs. And when I hit below the equator, it averaged 3,000 RPMs. So there was a 1,000 RPMs difference between high on the face and low on the face, which can be significant with distance. That could be at least 20 yards at kind of 260 carry. And then heel and toe as well. If you strike more towards the toe, depends how extreme, but if you strike more towards the toe, that tends to reduce the spin. If you strike more towards the heel, that tends to increase the spin. And again, there was about, I, th- I think it was about 500 to 1,000 RPMs difference between them. So a real killer for distance is if you strike low and on the heel because the spin rate just rockets up and that's the first thing when i see people saying i spin it way too much my spin is 3500 or more i saw a guy yesterday it was 5000 rpms i don't know whether it was a misread but uh, (laughs) yeah he, he sent me some data and i'm like you know what I've seen this before, but I've it, the swing that he sent didn't kind of match up. So sometimes it may be a misread. If you've got a device that's lesser quality, let's say, than a quad or a trackman or something like that, you're going to get more misreads with spin rates. Sometimes it can double it. I remember having an issue with flight scope once where I hit about 20 balls in a row and it was measuring 4,000 RPMs of spin. And I was looking at these balls, and they're like rainbow flights. I'm like, that's clearly sub 2,000. So sometimes the device might see the ball rotate, see the logo on the ball, and double the spin rate. So that's just something to be careful about. Your spin rate might not always be what you think it is or what the machine is reading. But a quad, I've never had a misread on a quad yeah, I'm trying to find it myself. I did a test also with my driver. Let's see if I can find it here. No, I can't. But I just remember like on my SkyTrack, I, I don't have you know impact location with that, but I sprayed the face and like, yeah, pretty much same driver swing. If I struck it on the bottom of the face, it was like a 230 yard drive, like super high spin for me, probably like 3000. And then if I hit it higher on the face, a touch higher, then it went up to like 270, 280. So there was almost like 40, 50 yards of difference because of spin and ball speed between extreme bottom of nothing good happens on the bottom of the face. <laughs> you, you can get, especially that heel thing you're talking about. I do have that miss sometimes and it's it's bad. It's just like a low piss rocket, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've seen differences on my driver, like just impact location. You're talking 30, 40, 50 yards plus loss in accuracy as well it's a big big deal yeah the killer for me because i teared up high and behind it and i'm launching it really high that works really well if the spin is sub 2000 but occasionally i'll hit it a little low on the face and i see it the moment i do it, i'm like oh god and i see it go it launches high but it's just very floaty, the flight. You can see it spinning, and high launch and high spin is not a great combination for distance. No, no. And I just know that one's coming out short. All right, so 
Impact's important. Let's wrap that up. <laughs> hey, what do we want to move on to next? There's something I haven't said with Impact. The toe oh of the club is moving faster than the heel. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it can be as much as like 10 mile an hour, depending on the extremes. So when you see club speed, right, something like TrackMan measures club speed. So it's looking at the mass of the club head and saying, how fast is that moving? However, even if your club head is moving 100 mile an hour, different parts of the face are moving at different speeds. Because that club face is closing, the toe is moving faster. So there's this kind of balance. If you strike it more towards the toe, the club face is moving faster there. But you might reduce the smash factor because you're not getting as much energy into the ball because you're missing the sweet spot. But there is this kind of sweet spot zone where you get higher ball speeds than you would if you could hit the center of the face, especially with modern clubs that are more forgiving and they don't lose as much energy on off-center hits. So when I posted, I used to post my TrackMan numbers for my driver, and people would often comment, how are you getting 1.52 smashes and 1.53 smashes? Well, that's because TrackMan measures the club head speed, but I was hitting slightly off the toe, which is moving faster. So the ball was coming off much faster than it should have, than the club head would dictate. So this is important if because loads of people use radar now. So it's just an important thing to look at. Whereas when you use quad, a GC quad, that measures face speed. So it measures which part of the face touched the ball and how fast that was moving. So you'll often get lower smash factors with a quad. So, you know, if I make two swings, you'll often see my club face speed is higher on quad, but the overall smash factors are a little lower. So that's if you've used different devices in the past or if you're using a quad or, or track man, these are important things just to be aware of. I have noticed those differences too when I move from radar to camera. It can greatly affect that. Okay, now can we wrap it up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next on my list, and like I... I don't want to say this is like everything about driver performance, but you know, when you talk or when I was talking earlier about it's the only shot in golf where you really have complete control over the setup. And what I mean by that is like, you know, on approach shots, you might be in the rough, you might be in the fairway, you might have a side hill lie, you might have a downhill lie with wedges, you know, you might be in a bunker, you might be in the rough with the ball perched up. Like those are all you have to make miniature adjustments for that. But the driver, you don't have to do that. And you can practice and you can have complete control of your practice variables as well. It's a good thing because, you know, when you're at the driving range or at your house on your flat mat and with your T height, that is the same exact circumstance you will be dealing with on the course. You will not be dealing with that same circumstance with your irons because you're not going to be hitting off artificial turf with a perfectly level lie. So because of that, I've really paid a lot of attention to setup, in particular, the ball position and the tee height. And those two variables can change things a lot, where you place the ball in your stance and how high or low the combination or two of the tee height can change the curvature of the ball, you know, launch angle, spin rate, pretty much everything in your ball flight. So do we want to kind of dive into that? I mean, we can't account for every single variable, but, you know, that would be my next topic that I'd like to tackle. 
Yeah, I think in the winter you could probably experiment with some of those variables. Again, with a goal, generally. So, you know, it's not just, oh, let's tee it high and see what happens, tee it low and see what happens. I mean, maybe you do. It's, it's fine to do as well. But usually you try and match the setup to your goal. It's like, okay, I yep. want to hit higher on the face because I want to increase my launch and lower my spin. Therefore, let's experiment with teeing it different heights and see what happens. And then you may stand back a little bit farther away from it, a little closer to it to see how that matches up with T-height, which was a question that we had. What does T-height change in your swing? Obviously, all else being equal, if you tee it higher, you can hit higher on the face. That is if you are a robot. In reality, if you tee it higher for 100 golfers, there will be a subset of golfers who will actually hit it lower on the face because Absolutely. they see it higher. I do that sometimes too. If I tee it too high, I do strike it lower on the face. Yeah. And the reason why probably is because they see it teed higher than usual. They yep. <laughs> get frightened that they're going to sky it. And so unconsciously or consciously, they swing higher through impact and they end up uh, getting the opposite result to what they wanted. So it, it's something that you have to train in yourself. I would at least spend some winter training going different heights just to see if you can hit the ball off different heights. I mean, when people see how high I tee it, when I want to hit 10 up on it, they are shocked. Their mouths are to the floor. They're like, oh my God, you tee it that high? I mean, I've added tees on top of tees to get the height that I need to hit up on it. Just to, you know, even from just a trick shot perspective, just to see if you can do it. It's fun to do it occasionally. But I've settled on something that's not as extreme now. Any thoughts from you, John, on tee height? We are going to take a quick break right there and we'll be right back. What's up, Sweet Spot listeners? I am super excited to introduce a new brand we're working with, Gooder Sunglasses. I pretty much do not go outside without sunglasses on, and I definitely wear them all the time on the golf course, so it's a really important product for me. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that are lightweight, comfortable, and do not move while you swing. When I first got them, I was shocked at the quality. There's no way you would know they were $25 if someone just put them in your hands. Their golf sunglasses have HD contrast, so you'll see clearly when you're on the golf course, and you don't have to worry about losing them because they don't have a hefty price tag. You may have seen Sergio Garcia wearing them recently playing on the PGA Tour. They have a wide variety of designs and colors that should suit just about any style you're looking for, whether it's for golf or elsewhere in your life. All Gooder sunglasses are 100% UV protective and have polarized lenses. You'll also get a one-year warranty and a 30-day window to return them for free if you don't like them. If you want to try out a pair or two, we've arranged an exclusive discount for Sweet Spot listeners. Go to gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash Sweet Spot and use promo code Sweet Spot at checkout and you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's www.g-o-o-d-r.com forward slash Sweet Spot. And make sure to use promo code SWEETSPOT at checkout for your 15% discount. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. 
You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G's shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, so T height for me is a lot of it is tracking how the T height will change your impact on the club face because that's, as we said, <laughs> impact is super important. So I'm trying to look for consistency. I want to get to the course and know that I'm not going to start teeing it low on some shots and then super high based on how things are going. I want to arrive at the T height for me that I know gives me the best chance of striking it more towards the center, perhaps a little bit higher on the face versus going too low. Now, like you said, you take a hundred golfers and you give them a super low T height. That's going to be tough for them to strike it higher on the face. They're probably going to veer towards lower on the face. And if you give a hundred golfers a higher T height, then yeah, they're probably going to start accessing the center or the upper portion of the face more often. Again, not the same for everyone. So yeah, I would spend some time working with different tee heights and you can buy, like I have these, I bought these plastic. You don't have castle tees, do you, John? No, I have the, I forget what they're called. I bought these like tees off Amazon. They've been on the golf channel before. I think that's like the keyword you can search for on Amazon for them. Bird tees or something? A little shuttlecock? Yeah, it looks like a shuttlecock. Yeah. So what I've done is like I've cut different heights for those. And I've experimented so that I know, okay, I've actually settled on a somewhat higher T height over the last couple of years, not crazy high, but I know that's my T height that gives me the best chance. I'm always tracking that. And it also does affect angle of attack as well. Like if you're teeing it so low, 
you know, you're probably going to encourage a more downward angle of attack versus a higher T height. Like you watch the long drive guys who like you are trying to hit up on at 10. That's going to encourage a more positive angle of attack. It can. It, it can. can. I know, yeah. it, I know um, it's not always the case, but like I'm, I should clarify that my main goal for T height is tracking the variable of impact location. I'm not so concerned with the angle of attack thing because I think I'm doing other things with my setup to affect that. Yeah. If you were a swing robot, then T height wouldn't change angle of attack because angle of attack is more product of where the low point is. Mm -hmm. But for humans, yes, if you tee it lower, usually they will tend to swing on a more downward angle of attack or less upward angle of attack, usually. And uh, if you tee it higher, they'll tend to hit more on the upswing. But, you know, I've had people who I I add a higher tee to, and they they still hit down on it, and then they end up skying it. But that is something I want to add there is that Angle of attack is not arc depth. So they do kind of correlate a little bit, but they're not the same. So lots of times, say someone skies it, they sky, they hit the crown of the club and the ball goes straight up in the air and comes down 100 yards. The first thing they say is, oh, I must have hit down on it too much. Well, that is probably the case, but it might not be. You can actually hit up on a ball and still hit the crown. And if you tee it high enough, that's possible. Oh, absolutely. I've done that before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So angle attack is not arc depth. So if someone's hitting, someone's vertically on the face, striking a part of the face they don't want to, so they're striking it too high, skying it, or too low on the face, I would probably change T height first, and then I would go into controlling their arc depth. So I'd get them to consciously swing the club either higher through impact or lower to change that. Angle of attack, it correlates, but it's not the reason why you hit it higher or lower on the face. Let me flip that a little bit so people can understand that. You can hit on the upswing and you can hit high on the face and you can hit low on the face on the upswing with a five degree up angle of attack. And at the same time, you could be someone who hits on the downswing by five degrees and hit high on the face or low on the face, even with a five degree angle attack. So the angle attack could remain exact same and you could hit different parts of the face vertically because of the arc depth or the arc height that your club is swinging through impact. So I think it sounds like we're both comfortable saying that experimenting with T height, you pay more attention to how that changes your impact location. That would be the number one variable to work towards. Yeah, change T height, experiment with intentionally trying to swing higher and lower through impact as well to see if you can change vertical strike. You know, that is a is a skill drill that I use all the time. If I need to move it higher up the face, I just think of the club coming in lower through impact. Not more downwards, but lower through impact. Think of it like a plane coming into into the golf ball, an aeroplane coming into the golf ball. It could be flying under the golf ball, but going upwards, or it could fly under the golf ball going downwards. So the downward trajectory or upward trajectory is angle of attack. Whether it's flying below or above the ball is arc depth. Yeah, I think if you took a more skilled player and you you know when you go to the driving range i remember this as a kid and you're searching all the stalls for the right t height and you get stuck with the one that's like 17 inches higher there's always like some ridiculous <laughs> one that's too high and like i'd be that's stuck the one practicing I've left there. yeah yeah that's the one you ended up with in general but 
I, I remember having being stuck with that. And then like, it actually was probably a really good practice session for controlling art death because, you know, I was trying to figure out a way to still probably strike it well with the, the team being so damn high. So yeah, that could be a very good form of practice. But like my main goal on T height is for golfers to find the height that gives them the best chance of accessing the center of the face vertically and then just like really controlling that and keeping track of it. It might change over time, but that's something that like I pay a lot of attention to. So much so, I've admitted on Twitter that I have a recurring nightmare. This is going to make everyone laugh. This is true. I'm not making this up. I've had this nightmare. I don't have a lot of nightmares, but this is the one that I get, thankfully. It's not that bad. I'm like very particular about my tee height when I play golf. And if it's not right, I will make sure it's right. So I have this recurring nightmare that I'm in a tournament or something. There's a ton of people around and I'm stuck on the tee box and I can't get my tee height right. And people are like screaming at me and I just can't get it right. And I never tee off. It just like I get stuck in this like dream loop of like, oh, it's too low. Oh, it's too high. So it's so deep in my psyche (laughs) getting the right tee height and being consistent with it that I actually have nightmares about it. I've never even thought about this, but as you're mentioning that, I'm I'm remembering a dream that I've had, very similar, where I just can't get the ball on the tee. It's not about tee height, but I'm trying to place it on and it keeps falling off. Try to place it on oh, again. I, I've, I've had that one forever. too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Right. We are very strange. But yeah, so the tee height, that's like my big thing on tee height. Yeah. There's one thing with tee height as well that I've noticed as a pattern, and it makes sense from geometry perspective when you tee it higher for players most people will actually their strike pattern will also move towards the heel of the club and the reason for that is if you try and swing the club higher through impact the club head also tends to go out a little farther from you and so those two are kind of coupled geometrically and so when you tee it up higher people tend to try and swing it higher through impact and so the club moves out more it tends to encourage more of a heel shot so when you look at me with a driver i tee it very very high and i usually set up a little out the toe it's not a conscious thing but i've just noticed it when i video myself i'm like oh i'm setting up out the toe because it's a decent matchup for me but i would say again it depends on your set of matchups if you want it more off the toe then you know, set up maybe more out of the toe. If you don't need it more off the toe, then don't worry about it. So sometimes it can be a great thing because if someone is hitting their low tee, they're teeing it low and they hit it off the toe, sometimes just raising the tee height can help fix it. Yep. I'll give a quick free plug for a product that I came across when I first started Practical Golf. If you are at like a driving range and you don't have those plastic tees that I was talking about, there's another product called the Tee Claw. It like attaches to the mat with a lanyard and you can actually use your own tee. So you can like cut or, you know, if you have plastic tees, like real plastic tees, you can cut them to different heights. So you're not stuck with that driving range mat tee so you can get more consistency. So you can take a look at that product that just came to my mind. Do you want to move on to ball position? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. What are your thoughts on that? So for me... And, you know, I guess we're probably going to get into D-plane a little bit here. But for my matchups, I've bored all of you with my in-to-out swing path. And I've just figured out anecdotally over time that if I put the ball, like, in the middle of my stance with my driver, I'm going to catch it on a more in-to-out path. Like, your club path changes based on ball position. I've seen some very cool visuals of this. One was from... 
another guest on the show, Sasha McKenzie, he had a really cool video on this. I think it was some research he did with Ping. But I've just noticed that, you know, if I put the ball in the middle of my stance, I'm just going to hook it more because I'm catching it so early in that that arc. If you know, if you're looking down at your feet, you can think of like this hula hoop or a portion of a hula hoop. And if I move it back, I'm going to get it more on the in to out part of the hula hoop. So there's actually certain times I actually have this shot that I've worked on for years where I will put the ball in the middle of stance with my driver and it helps me de-loft it and hit more of a hook. And if I, it works in like a really bad wind, I'll just hit this hot running hook that stays low, starts right and comes back and it just runs forever. I don't use it too much, but I've got that shot. I like it. I feel comfortable with it. So for me, it's a very good matchup to move the ball further up in my stance because I'm, I've just noticed it reduces the curvature of the golf ball. And I know we're probably going to get into angle of attack with this as well, but I don't think there's necessarily a right answer for everyone. Like I wouldn't tell most golfers to tee it up in the middle of their stance for a number of reasons, but I've seen people do it with success. I think the answer is somewhere further up in your stance. But for me, that's a good matchup because I'm starting to get more into swinging a little bit less into out or even left sometimes and hitting up on it. So I can hit more of a, a straightish drive that launches higher. So for me, like figuring out the optimal ball position in addition to T height is something I grinded really hard on with my sky track where I was experimenting and experimenting. And I'm like, okay, these, this is the optimal combination of ball position and T height for me at this moment in time. And it hasn't changed too much over the years, but that was like a big thing to unlock for me because then I went on the course with confidence saying like, this combo gives me the best chance of an optimal launch angle, spin rate, ball speed, because I'm striking it well on the face. And that was one of the big problems I had to solve with my driver is finding that combination and, and ball position was was very important for me. And I'm sure you can speak a lot better to the, the D-plane effect of everything as you move the ball around in your stance. Yeah, so I mean, the summary of ball position if you move the ball forwards all else being equal you're going to hit more up on it the path is going to be more left and there's going to be more loft applied through impact and you'll tend to hit a little lower on the face as well and so to go through d-plane the easiest analogy i have for d-plane is to imagine a, a ferris wheel right so you're at a fairground there's a big ferris wheel going and the ferris wheel is moving in a certain direction or you'd say the people at the bottom of the ferris wheel are moving in a certain direction you could call that swing direction now if you took that ferris wheel and you tilted it we now have a swing plane effectively it's like a golf swing plane it's a tilted ferris wheel so that club direction is now just tilted the swing direction is the same those people at the bottom of the ferris wheel are still moving forwards but they're now tilted so you can imagine that those people on the ferris wheel if you to look at those individual people or the individual carts that could relate to what we call club path so you can imagine the people who are earlier in the Ferris wheel who are going on the downward part. So they've, they've reached the top. They're now going down towards the bottom. As they're moving down, before they reach the bottom, they're moving more down and more to the right. 
So if you were looking at it from a bird's eye perspective, they're moving down and more to the right. And after they reach that lowest point on the Ferris wheel, they start to move up and to the left. So think about where your ball position is. If your ball position is farther forwards in your stance, farther forwards in the Ferris wheel, you've reached that low point and now the path, the club, is moving up and to the left. Does that analogy make sense to you? I can visualize it. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I guess the tough question I'm going to ask you, because there's a lot of people who have the opposite pattern that I do. So for me, moving up the ball in my stance with my driver solves a lot of problems. You know, if I move it to the middle of my stance, my path is more in to out. And if I move it further up, it's less in to out, even left. So I can start, you know, I've been measured on the GC quad recently where my swing path with my driver is only like one to three degrees into out and I'm hitting up on it a few degrees. And I know that's kind of a matchup that a lot of people aspire to. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been a good driver of the ball the last few years. They kind of neutralize each other and it works really well for me. So I guess the question that everyone wants to know is like, well, what if I have an out to in swing path and now moving the ball further up in my stance gets me even further left? How do you solve that problem, Adam? <laughs> well, that is, that is an issue. If you are a big slicer of the ball, probably moving the ball farther forwards is not going to help you because it's going to make your path more left. Now, the problem with slicers are they're swinging to the left, right? So their Ferris wheel is, is actually pointing to the left. So you could imagine if you took that Ferris wheel, so the, the people are all moving to the left. So the swing direction, even before we tilt it. And so... You know, and often when you turn that Ferris wheel to the left, when you swing to the left, that moves the low point forwards, especially when the, the Ferris wheel is tilted. If you can visualize this now, imagine a Ferris wheel that is tilted and then you just turn it all to the left. That would move the bottom of the Ferris wheel forwards. So that makes the angle of attack steeper. So often when I see a, like a five degree down angle of attack with a driver, that person is also swinging left. So how do you fix that? Or what do you do for that person who's swinging left, slicing, and they're steep, and they want to hit more up on it? Well, the answer in that person is not to move the ball farther forwards. It's to change their swing direction. Yeah, they don't have an option in that instance, right? They're kind of locked into making that change. Yeah, I mean, they could move the ball forwards, and it would make them hit up on it but now their path is even more left you've was it rob paul to pay peter is that the phrase you know you've taken something from somewhere to give it to somewhere else you've increased the angle of attack but you've made the path worse whereas to get both things better if you actually swing more to the right so you take that ferris wheel and you turn it that tilted ferris wheel and you turn it more to the right that will move the low point position so the low point is more behind the ball so now that person is swinging up and because you turned the, the ferris wheel to the right that will also make the swing direction more to the right which will make the path more to the right so you get that you kill two birds with one stone with that i think people are like puking off of this it, it metaphorical is. uh ferris wheel right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going around pretty fast. Yeah, they're well, like they're being swung around. They can't handle it. Hey, here's my plug. I actually did a, a module called Plate Golf. And the reason why I call it Plate Golf is instead of a Ferris wheel, I used a dinner plate. 
And I've got a little clip on my Instagram somewhere, but it's in my next level golf program. And if you go in there, I go through all of this with the visuals and it is so clear, as clear as day when you see it. Verbally, this is very difficult to understand unless you've got a good imagination. So let me ask you a question. So for me, the realization of becoming someone who probably had too much curve on their driver and and wouldn't control it very well. And I figured out, well, hey, I can just put the ball further up in my stance, get the tee height right and feel like I'm making somewhat of the same swing. And I just kind of, maybe I lucked into, you know, these matchups, reducing the curvature on the ball, launching it higher and somewhat straighter for me. It just was a somewhat of an easy transition for me moving the ball more forward and trying to hit up on it, it just seemed to work out really well for me. Did I just get lucky with my matchups because I was essentially neutralizing my existing swing problems? Yeah, pretty much. Your swing yeah, is I in did. to out. And so yeah. placing the ball forwards, which helps with the driver because it increases launch, you know, it increases the launch angle. So, and it fits with your in to out swing. So yeah, your set of matchups work. The most good drivers that I see, they are people who tend to have a more rightward swing direction, you know, and then it allows them to tee it farther forwards and get those optimal launches as well. Now, there are some very good drivers like, a, say, a Brooks Koepka who tees it maybe lower than usual and swings a little bit more left on it. Again, yeah, those he, are decent matchups. And he hits slightly down on it, I believe. Yeah, because for years, I was trying to hit that fade off the tee because I was just told like, yeah, you know, the fade listens to you or whatever was said all those years. So I was unsuccessfully trying to play a left to right curvature off the tee. And really what it was just resulting in is with these really bad blocks and hooks, I couldn't control the face, wasn't very good at any of it. And then I just kind of as I switched my whole swing over more to the draw pattern, I was still trying to fight against that off the tee. I was trying to hit a fade off the tee and a draw with my irons. And then I was like, why am I fighting against this? And then I just kind of settled on that where I, I felt the freedom, as you said, to swing to the right, but at the same time, not worry about this massive hook coming from it because I was hitting so up on it. I could feel that. I was like, wow, the more I feel like I'm trying to hit up on it and it's further up in my stance, the straighter this thing is going. And I could live with that little right miss where I just kind of hit a straight block. I don't want to live with that duck hook. I know Ben Hogan was famous for saying that too, but you just can't live with that ball flight off the tee or that that low hook. It's just, it's, it's pure misery. Yeah, with you, with your rightward swing direction, when you are trying to place the ball farther back in the stance, it's going to make your path even more to the right. And so it wasn't, yeah. that wasn't a good matchup for you. You'd either have you'd have to hit a massive hook to get the ball onto the target. So for the people listening to this, because I'm sure we have a ton of slicers, I know that it's not going to work for everyone, but would that be your main recommendation is like you're going to have to figure out a way to learn how to start swinging to the right? Maybe that's just by having a more closed stance or just thinking about that in general. Is that usually one of your your main recommendations? Because that's what makes sense to me. When I see a slicer, I'm like, I'm like, you got to figure out how to come from the opposite direction and get more to the right because this matchup's not working for you. You can't live with that excessive curvature and, you know, it's almost like a weaker ball flight for most people too. So what I'd say there is if you are a slicer, but you are hitting up on it. So, you know, say I see someone with a five left path, but they're hitting five degrees up on it. We might actually keep that. Maybe work towards neutralizing it a little bit, but we might keep it 
because they're already hitting up on it. So that can work like a Bubba Watson. That's kind of what he does. Whereas if you're a slicer, you're five left and you're five down on it, you're hitting on the downswing, then we would swing more to the right because that would bring up the angle attack and move the path more to the right. And so, yeah, that is usually a better model for most people for maximizing distance. And that's a pretty common pattern that you see is that hitting down and to the left with driver. Because I've just, you know, me watching people on the golf course and their ball flight, I'm like, that's got to be what this is. They're they're down and left and it's just not, it's a golf's all about matchups or a lot of golf is about matchups. And that's not, that's not a matchup that is going to lead you to better driver play. Yeah, 8 out of 10 left swingers, 8 out of 10 slicers, faders uh, hitting down on their driver, I would say. But, you know, the player with prodigious swing speed like Brooks Kepka or Cameron Champ comes to mind too. Like he hits down on it with his driver and, and is launching it low and hitting a like a squeeze fade, but he also is swinging at 128 miles an hour. So he has the ball speed to get away with that. Whereas, you know, you look at the normal golfer who's got the 90, 95 mile per hour swing speed and they're just losing too much distance and accuracy with that down and left swing path like they just can't recover from it it's just zapping everything away out of the ball flight yeah if you're hitting like three five degrees down you're probably going to be launching it no higher than 10 degrees now when you consider the optimal launch for a driver is closer to 18 degrees or even more in some cases so if you're swinging down like brooks kepka and launching it eight to ten degrees that's fine if you've got a ball speed of 180 mile an hour it's still going to get out there now it's still not optimal for distance if you wanted to increase Brooks Kirpka's distance, you'd get him to hit more up on it because that offers him an opportunity to launch it more optimally. However, when you've got a machine like Brooks Kirpka who's good at what he does, you're not (laughs) going to go in and change it because you're going to, you might add 30 yards to his game, but at what cost? Yeah, that was a big part of our conversation with Shaheen Nakjavani is like, what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose with a change like this? So, I would say it'd be a very the, brave coach who would do that. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You'd have to be crazy to do that. And, and, and in a way, that's what Bryson did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's an example of it working. He was a good driver of the golf ball before he was hitting at 300, but he's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I want to hit at 340. So he started learning how to hit it up, up on it six, seven, 10 degrees. He took a big risk. Yeah. But I would say, you know, for the type of, you know, again, that is a, a tour player looking to ascend to the top in the world. If you are someone who's struggling with the driver and you have that like banana slice pattern, that's not going very far. I don't want to say you've got nothing to lose, but you've got a lot less to lose than Brooks Kepka. So yeah, you might want to experiment saying like, well, maybe like, you know, I think closing the stance could help a lot and getting the ball further up and like, let me experiment just maybe swinging to the right a bit and see what happens. It could open up a whole new world for you. Yeah, I mean, with Bryson, I know Chris Como reasonably well. He's We're going to have him on the podcast at some point. And, you know, with his combination, Chris is very kind of cautious. He talks about leaving breadcrumbs with Bryson so that if things didn't work out, they knew the steps to take back, to get back to where they were. And then when you combine that with Bryson's intelligence, you know, he knows what's going on. He understands the process completely. And he's a very mechanical player as well. That's He wants to achieve that goal at any cost. Whereas when you take maybe a more instinctive 
more intuitive player like a Brooks Kepka. I would imagine he's more intuitive. That might be um, a more dangerous scenario to change that. Now, it might happen in the future. Maybe Brooks wants to do that and hit more up on it and add that 30 yards. But uh, I certainly wouldn't be a coach that, that would recommend that to him personally. Yeah, it's. I mean, that is the always the biggest question of golf is the risk reward. All right, so do we want to end ball position there? With <laughs> maybe we we gave some rules of thumb, maybe confuse some people, maybe not. But yeah, I think in general your ball position, and again, there's no right answer for everyone. We got some questions on Twitter, like, "Well, I have it just outside my big toe on my left foot. Should I move it closer in?" I'm not sure. I don't know if that's a good matchup for you. But you can certainly pay attention to how moving the ball around in your stance. I would say I'd primarily looking for the curvature of the ball, how it changes that, in addition to how high or how low it's launching. You may have to recalibrate the face a little as well, because you know when we're talking about curvature, ball position is going to affect the path. It might have a, a less predictable effect on the face. Usually having the ball forwards will open the face to path, usually, but it's not always the case, and vice versa. Yeah, it's something you have to... I would say for most golfers, like, yes, I don't want people teeing the ball in the middle of their stance. Like, I don't think yeah, that's a, that's a good, good, that's not good for most players. And I see a lot of golfers doing that. If because, you're doing you know, that, you're also doing some other things that are really wrong that are probably not optimal. Yeah. I hate to say wrong because, you know, matchups and there's no perfect way of swinging. But if you're teeing the ball middle of the stance with a driver, there's something not optimal happening. You're probably hanging on the back foot a lot. And you're just not going to be getting optimal launch and spins from there, definitely. Yeah, so somewhere like, you know, some people say like just inside the lead foot. Uh, maybe I'm there a little few inches behind that. But I'd say it's maybe towards the middle half. Like if you're looking at the difference between like the inside of your lead foot and the middle of your stance. Like you could start by maybe splitting the difference between the two and then moving a little bit further or back from there and seeing and just you know, paying attention to what it does to your ball flight. That for me was huge, and I think it could maybe unlock some, hopefully, treasures for other players. Did you want to move on to angle of attack now as a separate discussion? What's on your list? I got a couple more notes on the ball position one. So having it forward, yeah, we talked. We talked how it affects angle of attack. More forwards equals more up. All else being equal, we've talked how it affects path. More forward equals more left path. All else being equal. And with loft, if you move the ball forwards, it will tend to add more loft. Also, is strike. that because the hands tend to be more? You're getting less forward shaft lean over yes. there, and your hands are a little bit behind the ball more, or maybe exactly. level with the ball. Exactly. Yeah. So all that's equal. If you make the same swing and the ball is farther forwards, you're going to be hitting on a part of the arc where the club head has overtaken the hands more, and so there's going to be more dynamic loft there. I'm sure there's some weird things with kick points and shafts that might negate that, but I, I would believe what I just said holds true in 99% of cases. It may make you hit it lower on the face, though, having the ball farther forwards. Because if you think about that Ferris wheel again, the people have gone on the downswing, they've reached the bottom of that Ferris wheel, which is the lowest point, is the part that's closest to the ground. And now they're starting to hit on the upswing, they're starting to move back up and in again. And that part of the Ferris wheel is higher from the ground. So as you hit more on the upswing, it tends to be that the arc depth is higher or the club is swinging higher through that point. 
So you may have to tee it up higher. So this is why you see all the long drive champions who are all hitting it 10 degrees up. They're also using insanely high tees, just like I said I use. When people see how high I tee it, their jaws are on the ground. And so, yeah, so you may have to just, if you're going to move the ball up to hit more up on it, you may have to tee it up higher. So monitor the vertical face strike and see. Maybe you don't have to tee it higher. Maybe things, the stars just align, but it's something to be aware of. Now, a more advanced thing with ball position, and it kind of segues into the next thing as well with angle of attack. One of the ways that you can hit more up on it without changing ball position is to get your spine more tilted away from the target through impact, at least in 3D space. I want to say that. And by the way, if you're going to do any of this, I would consult a physician to make sure you're not going to get injured. I would do it with a professional in front of you to make sure you're not going to get injured. We are not liable for anything here, but (laughs) it's it's important to say. Yeah, no, I don't don't, don't want people to get hurt either. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it can be kind of a dangerous move in a way. Like if you get your spine really tilted and you do it in the wrong way, it it could uh, potentially hurt you. So, you know, say you look at Justin Thomas or something, someone who's like 80 degrees at impact if 90 degrees is straight up like you're hitting an iron he's 80 degrees he's tilted 10 degrees away from the target through impact and so in terms of spin loft so when people are looking to increase or reduce spin if you just move the ball up in your stance what i've noticed is people hit more up on it but they also tend to spin it more as well the spin rate increases. So just whacking the ball forward in your stance might not get you more distance. Because as I said, angle of attack improves, but spin increases as well, which is a bad thing. Whereas what I've found is that when you tilt your body away or you get tilted more away from it, more behind the ball at impact, you can achieve that upward angle of attack with a lower spin loft. So that's the, one of the ways that I reduce spin. So that's a, a much more advanced thing, but it goes into how either ball position or body tilt can affect angle of attack and the differences into how they affect spin rates yeah that's like the magical combo is how can you increase launch while keeping spin down because some people would say like oh you're gonna have to increase the loft on your driver problem with that is it'll increase the spin Mm -hmm. and reduce the smash as well yeah so that's you know the magic is your angle of attack has become such an important point of discussion with driver over the last, you know, five, 10 years. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that chart from TrackMan showing, you know, what a, a typical golfer stands to gain from going from a minus five to a plus five angle of attack. I mean, there are massive gains in distance because you are launching it higher with less spin. So hitting up on it, like I've figured out to do myself is a way for me to, add launch angle but not add spin rate you mentioned this earlier that that is a bad combination to launch it higher with more spin it just balloons on you so the angle of attack is kind of like the x factor there correct yeah i mean just changing loft is bad in air quotes in terms of it's not going to give it you it could optimal. be it, you know in terms of club fitting like yes there is a right loft for everyone so sometimes you just need a higher loft in general like i have higher lofts on my driver than most people I'm at 10 and a half degrees where some people it might be more appropriate to be eight degrees. There's different reasons for that. But yeah, that will, you know, all things being equal, that does increase spin rate, which is 
sometimes a good thing for some golfers. You know, we're always talking about those matchups. Yeah, I tend to change loft only really when I want to change spin rate with a player. So that's what loft is there for me. It's not to change launch angle. If I want to change launch angle, I will usually change their technique. I'll get them to hit more up on it. Because that will, the hitting up in itself doesn't necessarily change the launch angle, but hitting up usually goes with more, with increased loft as well. They're usually coupled quite well. But yeah, once I've got them hitting up on it how much we want, then we adjust the loft to get the, the desired spin rate. But you know, it can be if you take an example of a Brooks Kepka, say he's launching at eight degrees and his spin is only 1,500 RPMs for whatever reason, just jacking up his loft might be a way of not changing the machine, uh, being the machine being him. (laughs) You're not tinkering too much with him, but you're getting more optimal results out of him. So it depends on your goal, right? If you're seeking ultimate optimal distance, you're going to have to hit up on it and probably use a lower lofted club. Whereas if you're just saying, right, I just want to keep what I've got swing-wise and I just want to get more optimal results out of my swing, then that's where club fitting will go and that's where you could just jack up the loft. Absolutely. Do we want to talk more about how angle of attack you can change it? You mentioned the tilt. I mean, I always think about this moment I had. This is probably like 13 or 14 years ago at this point, but I was playing down in Florida. I might've mentioned this story before on the podcast. I apologize if it's a duplication here, but this is when I was just, I was playing a course down in Florida where if you missed it left or right, you're in the swamp. Florida golf is very uh, (laughs) difficult off the tee. You're just, you're always staring at water. And for someone like myself that had very poor control over the driver, it was just terrifying. So I was playing with this really good golfer who was I think a former division one player and I was keeping up with him for a few holes and then I just started spraying it everywhere and I'm watching him hit these drives all day like beautiful trajectory and this was even really before launch monitors became popular and I was like how do you do that he's like I just hit up on it I'm like what he's like I hit up on my driver I'm like oh I never thought about that and then I just kind of forgot about it for years <laughs> until I was like actually formally introduced to the concept of angle of attack. But I think a lot of players figured this out over the years intuitively, the better ones, the better drivers of the ball, that they weren't going to swing down on it like their irons. They had to kind of sweep up with it. And, and a lot of questions we got is, is like, how do you do that? Well, you know, I was taught the opposite, right? I was taught fairway finders. Those are the main things. And how do you find the fairway? Well, hit down on it. Yeah, it's like this. Well, they always talked about like the squeeze fade where you would tee it low and try and squeeze this like low running fade. I could never do it, but that was, you know, something I always heard as a junior golfer. Yeah. Well, how do you hit up on it? Well, the tilt of your body, or you could think of it as where your weight is at impact as well. So if you are more behind it at impact, if your head is more behind it. So one of the things I remember as a kid, they used to say, if you want to hit up on it, place the logo of the ball at the base of the ball and imagine you're looking at the logo all the time. So you're basically looking at the underside of the ball as you're hitting it and that's going to get your body into a certain position. Or you could use the nail drill, imagine the nail through the ball and angle it slightly up. So that will encourage you to be more behind it at impact. Basically anything that gets your low point more back will help you hit up on it more. So ball position, we've already talked about. Ball position more forward equals low point is more behind the ball. So that helps you hit more up on it. Release 
This is a more complicated one, one that I usually don't go into unless I'm with a player personally. Doing a little um, bit of an early release with it? Yeah, an earlier release. I don't like players to early release because most players do that too much anyway. And it just yeah, that's a, that's a terrifying... Off. That would be a scary thought for me. I would just like... I wouldn't be able to control the face as well, I think. Yeah, it can affect consistency as well. So even if you look at great drivers of the ball they actually still have a relatively late release where that club lines up with the lead forearm still around about where the ball is very similar to what it is with an iron their body is just more tilted behind it so an earlier release would add loft and an angle of attack but it's not in my opinion it's the worst option to do yeah because if you look at someone like rory at impact with his driver he still has a slight forward shaft lean but as you said he's like tilted to the sky his shoulders are pointing to the sky and he, I know, I know he hits like three to five up on it. You know, yeah. Yeah. There's much less shaft lean than with an iron obviously, but again, that's yeah. all the, the motion itself is probably going to be very similar and, and where the release happens is going to be maybe a little earlier with a driver, but it's, you know, his body is just more behind it. So there's less forward shaft lean and that club kicks forwards as well. You know, if you're really looking at the, the shaft through impact we have what we yeah, call like, lead deflection where the club head forward, kicks right? forwards yeah so yeah. you know he might have forward shaft lean slight forward shaft lean if you're looking at the top part of the club but if you went right down to the base of the club the the hosel part say six inches from the hosel you'd see the hosel is actually leaning backwards through impact a little bit so yeah i mean release could be an option the only time i'd say a release an earlier release is a a good option for someone is someone who's already relatively straight but hits it nowhere and they've got a very low swing speed and they just need to launch it as high as possible so i'm thinking of a you know some juniors some weaker players as well maybe some seniors players without a lot of strength so yeah an earlier release might help them hit it higher add spin loft there but generally it's not something i use so we've got Ball position, weight and tilt, body tilt. We've got potentially release. The only other one is swing direction. We've talked about that. The more you swing into out, the more you swing to the right, the actually that moves the low point back. Most people don't know this one, so they should say this one again. The more you swing to the right, the low point will move more back in your stance. Or the more you swing into out for all our left, left-handers listening. And so, yeah, that is a way of hitting more up on it. So I could hit more up just by thinking, nail it more to the right. My path goes more right and my swing goes more up. Yeah, I don't, I guess because I have the swing direction thing working for me already, the, the setup for me takes care of most of it. And I guess we'll do that uh, warning again because, yeah, when I set up to my driver, I feel like in comparison to my irons, I have more weight distributed on my trail side, even at setup. I feel like almost my weight's on my trail foot, which is the total opposite of what I try and feel with with iron and wedge shots. I have my weight more forward. So with that, that allows my head to get a little bit behind the ball more. My shoulders, like if if you drew a line across my shoulders, that line would be pointing straight across with my irons, whereas now that line is pointing more towards the sky and that helps me hit up on it. Now that could be bad for certain players. Like yet you mentioned this earlier that could potentially injure some people with the spine tilt. Uh, We don't want to hurt people's backs, stuff like that. Also, you know, 
if it's a bad match, like let's say if you're someone who early releases too much and you're adding loft, like let's say you're that player who has the hands behind the ball at impact and you're a scooper, you know, tilting back more and going more on, on that back foot, like then you could just launch it way too high, right? Like that would be, that would be a really bad thing to do. So I'm not sure it's for everyone. For me, that helps me achieve the positive angle of attack without thinking I'm doing it from a technical perspective. Like I'm not necessarily stepping up to my driver being like, oh, I'm going to do this with my swing to hit up on it. I'm kind of just taking care of that with my, like we said, the ball position, um, my weight distribution, how I'm set up, um, and just feeling like I'm behind the ball more throughout the swing versus, you know, with my irons, I'm not feeling it that way. It's more of like a setup weight distribution thing more than a swing change, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, yeah, I think for most people, having the ball a little bit farther forward is in the stand. So just make sure it's in a reasonable position and get your weight a little bit more on the back foot at address. That achieves the vast majority of everything you'd want to do. If, like I said, if I was in a lesson with someone and they're a slicer who's hitting on the downswing, that's when we would look at changing swing direction. But that's obviously not good for you if you're already a hooker of the golf ball. Do you like any of the drills? I won't call out the instructor by name in case you don't like the drill, but you know, there's some people who like to put physical barriers in front of the ball, like putting like a sleeve of golf balls would be an example, or like another tee that's even higher. Meaning like if you make contact with it, then you're, you know, swinging down versus if you, you know, don't make contact with it, then you're swinging up. Do you like that? Uh, Like it in air quotes with one caveat it can be decent feedback the only problem is you can cheat it right if you put a box of balls in front of the golf ball and you try and miss it people could just swing higher <laughs> right you can still yeah, swing level swing or down, yeah. even down and just higher and top the ball so what I, the way that i alleviate that issue is i place another tee in the ground so i place two tees together one is where the golf ball is Oh, the golf ball is on that. And then I place another tee slightly earlier in the swing, so before the golf ball, that's a little bit lower. And your goal is to hit both tees out of the ground whilst missing the object in front of you. So that will guarantee pretty much an, an upward swing. But it can be very laborious setting these things up and usually just... I prefer using a TrackMan or GC Quad, <laughs> but yeah, not everybody I, has that available well, to them, obviously. I, that was honestly the point. I, like, I haven't done that personally. I've relied more on my launch monitor, and like, I would refer people back to our episodes on launch monitor using it as feedback. Like, that's been like you know me investing in my SkyTrack. Like that, I would say is one of the biggest reasons why I'm driving the ball better than ever is because I had most of my driver practice is on that launch monitor. And while SkyTrack doesn't show me angle of attack, it, I do see launch angle. So I can see how these changes in ball position and setup and my weight distribution and stuff like that. That's how I figured out how to start launching at 13, 14, 15 degrees versus 8, 9, 10. I just knew all things being equal, you know, if I'm striking it quite well in the face most of the time, and then I'm increasing the launch angle with these other changes, that's a pretty good indication that I'm hitting more up on it. So yeah, the feedback from the launch is one of the things, and you know you can use some of the budget ones, but go back to our. I don't want to go over the same stuff we did in that episode because we did cover it, but definitely go back to our episode on launch monitors because I think 
the feedback you can get on drivers, whether you rent a session with a, a swing professional and they can look at it and wedges like that to me is like how that feedback is super critical. So that's a good point to make. And it's something that stays very stable as well, angle of attack. So, you know, it's good to go and rent. You don't you don't have to spend every session on a launch monitor. You just have to, you know, maybe once a month or so. If you're going to make a change, make that change, go off and practice it, come back a month later and, and retest and see if your angle of attack has changed. It's not something that's going to change every day, like maybe strike location or, or face direction would. Angle attack is much more stable. So, like I say, you don't have to spend a hell of a lot of money. You don't have to purchase your own launch monitor. It'd be great if you could, but obviously I understand it's a fair chunk of change. But yeah, how much is it to rent one now just for an hour or half an hour? Yeah, you can go, hopefully with all you've learned from this show, I mean, you could go to, there's all these now simulator businesses that have popped up that have track mans and all other stuff to measure this stuff. So you can book time on a simulator for an hour, maybe it'll cost you 50, 60 bucks, something like that, and start seeing, you know, what does my spin look like? What does my launch look like? And experimenting with this stuff like that is the best feedback you can get 100% because you're not guessing, you can dial in the numbers more. And I think it's, you know, if you're someone who really wants to get a hold of uh, better driver performance, yeah, I'd say the launch monitor for that would be far better than your irons because with the irons, it's like, there's way more factors in there, like spin rate and launch angle. Like you don't have the right answer for every club in the bag. There's so many, I think there's more variables that could like for me, like my variables of my irons are ridiculous. Like they would not work for another player. Whereas we can be pretty confident telling most golfers that, you know, if you could start launching your driver in that 13 to 16 degree window with, you know, less spin and good ball speed, like it's a lot less complicated in my opinion is what I'm trying to say. And in terms of cost as well, you know, just thinking about, okay, if you rented a TrackMan or a GC Quad, okay, it might be a little bit of an expense. But Or say you had a lesson, go and get a lesson because then you're getting the feedback from the Quad and the, G, and oh, the yeah. TrackMan and you're Absolutely. getting someone help you to actually change the numbers there. So now people say, oh, well, yeah, maybe a lesson is, is 100 to 200 bucks or something like that. I know that is expensive. I do know that is expensive. However, if you went from five degrees down to five degrees up in your angle of attack, you could potentially pick up 40, 50 yards of carry. And no 600, and hey, drivers are $600 now and people are, yeah. So like, yeah, I've always said that it's like a pack of lessons for 500 bucks versus a new driver. Go at the lessons if you're struggling. The driver's not going to fix it for you. The club fitting comes after you've worked on that stuff with the with the swing professional when you've you know normalized all right these are good matchups for me we can live with this then you go take a look at the driver and see if the fitting makes sense sometimes it doesn't and you know you can go back to our episode with Woody Lashin on that Woody has people because he is a responsible guy he has people who comes into his studio all the time who don't leave with a new driver because he's like I don't have anything that's going to increase your performance sometimes he does sometimes he doesn't but Changing your patterns, like going from that negative five to plus five, there isn't a driver in the world that will give you that change in performance. The majority of people that I see are going to pick up more distance from a lesson, from a technique change, than they will from a driver fit. That is not to say that driver fitting is not important. It is great for optimizing, maximizing. And then there's a subset of people who would achieve greater success. Like, for example, me, I'm going to achieve 
longer distances, not through a technique change, because my technique, I'm already hitting like eight to 10 up. I can hit up to 12 up if I want to. And I can achieve most of what I want with a spin loft. However, if I want to really optimize and get squeezes extra yards, I'm going to need the club fit. But most people are coming in with paths and faces that are all over the place, strike locations that are all over the place, not hitting up on it significantly. You know, the average launch that I see is like 12 degrees with 3,000 RPMs of spin. So there's kind of 40 yards in there just by increasing the launch and lowering the spin. Now, let me just throw all of that out of the water and, and show you what a lunatic I am. I just got some live information here. I'm trying not to pay attention to my text messages, but <laughs> you remember I went with the longer driver shaft last year. I went to the 47 inches. It was great for me. And then the USGA came out recently and said, hey, 46 is the limit. And I lost my mind and started crying internally. Yeah. So Woody, our club fitter, we chopped down my driver shaft to 46 inches to comply. And I lost... You know, I lost a few miles an hour of swing speed and ball speed, which was not pleasant. And then my local governing body, the MGA, I emailed the director and saying, are you adopting the local rule? I assumed they would. I said, no, we're not going to adopt it. (laughs) So we had already cut down my shaft. So I just got a message from Woody Lash, and I'm going to give a huge thank you to Acra Shafts right now and give them a plug because they're awesome. I have a 47-inch shaft on the way to me. So now I will have the 46 and 47. Oh man, I'm gonna have to buy another one, aren't I? What's yeah, what's the limit just, then? No. It well, on the tours it's gonna to be forty six inches, but they allowed the USGA and the RNA said that it will be a local rule. So local governing bodies for like amateur events can make that decision whether or not they want to adopt it. So mine, the MGA, has decided that right now they're not going to adopt it. So but I jumped the gun and we cut down what, the shaft. What's the limit for you then? 48 or 48. 47? Uh, yeah, 48. 48 oh, wow. But I'm going with the 47. So thanks to Woody and thank you to Acro Shafts. And I will stop paying attention to my text messages as we <laughs> record this episode. But I thought that was a perfect moment because we were talking about the pros and cons of uh, technical changes and club fitting. But yeah, I am mostly maxed out. So that inch, you know, it does, you know, that could be five, six, seven yards for me, which you know, in a tournament might make a difference. So, you know, I'm going to maybe go into the season with both and we'll see what happens. I need everything I can get. I might have to fly out to Woody and get him fit with the longest one I can. Yeah, you come out, play some of our great golf courses on Long Island and get a club fitting. We're going to end episode one right there and pick up right where we left off with episode two next week. You can find me, John Sherman, at practical-golf.com, and you can check out Adam's site at adamyounggolf.com. And a huge thank you to our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can find all your indoor golf needs at their website, shopindoorgolf.com. They are the experts when it comes to the best indoor simulators for your home or business. If you've got questions, you can call them up directly, talk to their guys like Brian and Wade, who will help you purchase the best watch monitor for your budget, and they'll guide you through all the different technologies and what can help you become a better player. So thanks again for their support and check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. And we will see you next week with part two of the driver improvement series.